Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today we're going to talk about authenticity, belonging, and third places to go. We have a home space, a workspace, but we need a third space. And we're also going to talk about why authenticity doesn't care about practicality. Welcome to the episode, Alana Globa. So <laughs> Hi, how are you? <laughs> I have been better, but okay. <laughs> everything, nothing lasts forever. So when it's good, you better enjoy it because it's not going to last forever. And when it's bad, it'll pass. It's true. I mean, how long do you do you find uh, that it passes? Like, how long does it usually take for these storms to pass for you? I would say it's a lot of it is so tied to circumstances, you know, things that are out of our control. So if you put that aside, it really depends. Having been diagnosed recently with major depressive disorder side by side with ADHD, there's first of all, ADHD increases the likelihood of depression. We know that to then be told that I have major depressive disorder tells me as someone who's very kind of self-empowered, that it is broadly been triggered by circumstances. And I think that's true of every mental state. We can be ecstatically happy when we're, for example, newly in love. But that that in itself is also unsustainable. You know what I mean? So it's the other extreme. It's hyper joy. You know, so I'm aware that I'm at the end of the spectrum right now where I have to, it helps me to do pattern interrupts. That's like a term I learned recently where focusing and continuing to focus on the problem, thinking that I can find some solution for it right now while also being in a a, a heightened emotional state rarely, if ever, gets me to a better place. Instead, turning, this is why I chose to live in a place where I have nature around. I have a cat. So nature is all around me to remind me and give me that pattern interrupt. But if we don't have that available to us, it can be as simple as, as lame as it sounds, bringing up a video of something that makes you laugh. That's the pattern interrupt your brain needs in that moment, because the further you go, it's kind of like if you're arguing with a significant other and you keep fighting, you keep thinking, if we just keep going as someone who's anxiously attached, if we just keep going, we're going to get to the solution. But it doesn't it doesn't help at a certain point. It's detrimental. Talk to me about more of these pattern interrupts, because I, I can imagine, I mean, for myself, I, I I'm currently now doing cold showers in the morning because I, I recognize that I'm Ooh. going through a depressive spell and there's something scintillating. Oh, I don't I, don't, I can't believe I, that word that word come from <laughs> scintillating. <laughs> Uh, but the cold showers, when I'm in a, a major depressive episode, um, they call to me. And I think part of it is I notice my body temperature change. Like I feel hotter, more heated. And so it's like, it's almost like that, that, that trope in movies where you see them throwing cold water in somebody's face. Like I literally need that. And the cold water doesn't feel as cold. Do you have other pattern interrupts besides laughter and nature and the cat? I guess it it depends on what you mean. So you can have a momentary short-term thing, but another one would be exercise. That would be a, a longer one. You can just do a five minutes of movement and that will already 
help your brain reset itself because you're getting back into your body. And I think that's the whole point is the reminder to be present is probably why the cold shower is helpful too, because it's such a a hit of sensory uh, experience. It's a a sensory change. And then that one is a more radical one. Um, But I even heard recently that after we have a moment of where we have a, a, a huge spike in uh, what's what's the chemical that we release when we're stressed? That's adrenaline, cortisol. Us... Cortisol. So yeah, the adrenaline and the cortisol when they're spiked after, for example, we nearly get into a car accident, or we something happens that scares the crap out of us, and we think, oh, okay, it's fine. I didn't get into the accident. Well, unfortunately, your body is still in that. It remains in that heightened state. Uh, because in nature, if we look and we think, oh, it's if I'm being chased by a predator, the what you would do is, oh, I'm heightened state cortisol jumps up. You run, you run until you outrun the predator. So you're doing that release naturally. So I recently heard a psychologist talk about how, in order to replicate that and get your body down to a more calm state, you might want to just run as quickly as you possibly can for a minute straight in place, or tense your body up as hard as you can for about that minute and that will replicate that uh de-escalation that you need internally because it's not just your brain that was triggered in that moment your body was too so that's but that's a very specific pattern interrupt in response to a sudden jarring uh cortisol inducing event well you know it's interesting as you were saying that i thought you were going to go into what to do right after we have that spike so, because I found that this morning I got up, I did the cold shower, I worked mm-hmm. out, I even went for a walk, and I still felt a, a strong depressive episode. And I'm like, am I, and as you were talking, I go, oh, I might be missing a step. Like, after I get that spike of adrenaline and cortisol, am I free to just go about my day? Or is there another piece of that puzzle to help me work through it? Because ideally, I think if you were uh, an animal being chased by uh, a a predator, right, and you escaped, then you would go back to the tribe and the tribe would hug you, surround you, check in on you, um, you know, groom you, look for any, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then you'd be able to um, play afterwards or reenact or get back into the routine of it. And And I think that part of what, as I'm looking back, at least for myself, what I was missing was that, um, that communal aspect that, okay, I had this spike, I had this kind of uh, a, a release in some kind of way but there wasn't the, the zebras weren't surrounding me to, you know, let me know that I'm still loved and supported. You know what I mean? Yes, that's a good point. So in addition to what I was mentioning before, so we think, oh, I had a stressful event, let me calm down. So before doing the calm down, do the increase of release of energy. So that one minute of getting the energy out, then you go into the calming and then you want the validation 
which is part of what you receive in a community setting is like when I'm stressed out, it helps me, even though ranting itself isn't the healthiest thing for us, as we learned from our colleague in Toastmasters recently, ranting, the act of ranting for a prolonged period of time increases our heart, but telling someone, hey, I just went through this, I'm having a hard time, do you mind listening for a little bit, and having that feedback of you're not alone, yeah, I think that is crucial. I've certainly had a number of occasions recently where talking to someone, anyone, especially someone who's going through the same thing, in my case, it's the job hunting process or job searching or job shopping, <laughs> many terms I've heard for it, uh, is, is that other person it's that level of empathy, but even if they can't quite empathize, even some sympathy, I think, helps us to feel less alone. And that's the, I think, what you're talking about, the internal de-escalation that we sometimes need. Yeah, I, you know, we've known each other for a while. And um, and so for the listeners out there, uh, I know Alana because we've been going to Toastmasters where we get to learn to to give a speech. And, uh, you know, we've had these very uh, in-depth and, and very personal conversations afterwards. Uh, actually, we bonded over uh, the, the TV show Succession on HBO. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, which, which really brings us into, you know, why I invited you on here in the first place is because of, uh, I want to talk about belonging. The last conversation we had we had such a uh, in-depth conversation about belonging and a need to belong. And, um, and I love watching TV shows. Michelle is not into the same TV shows that I am. And even if she is, she doesn't like to talk about them the way I do. And so I was like, I need a person to talk about this stuff with. Um, and then I found out in Alana and then I, I you know, I've, and since then, I've met some other people. I was like, oh, my God, this is what I, I've been needing. I, I, didn't, I didn't know that. But I think when we think about belonging, we on the surface think about it in terms of numbers. Like, I need more friends. Like, we think it's a, it's a, it's a uh, quantity issue. Like, if I had more friends. But really, it's about finding people who have, like, shared interest and, you know, um, shared beliefs and shared goals and maybe a similar socioeconomic status, like people that just have a similar value system uh, as you do. Um, yes. I see you nodding your head. I feel like I could ramble on forever, but I feel like I, I've also talked too much already. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I, I, we, we speak in we speak in like these short form rambles. I yeah. would say because rambling can go on forever. So we try to. This is why I wanted to be able to see your face because I'm yeah. like I need to, you know, when it tapers off. Um, so I think that definitely not about the quantity. It's absolutely about the quality, and I think that that's true in all aspects of life, but. I, I also feel as though you touched on the fact that you have your partner, Michelle, and the over-reliance on our romantic partners is something that you and I have talked about, which has historically not led to anything positive. In my own experience, my parents, having been immigrants twice over, were so focused on just having each other to lean on as that, that structure, because they were partners in these huge life-altering changes. I was begging them, you need to get friends. 
you guys need friends because you can't, this is why you bicker because you only have each other to talk to and feed off of. So having a circle and a community around us, and it goes back to that, that subject of community, it's not a matter of the size of the community. It's the quality of the individuals in it who you've thoughtfully and heartfeltly, that's a word I've just made up, selected because they resonate with you for any number of reasons. It's not like you have to align in every aspect of life, just like with your significant other. You shouldn't expect them to align in every aspect and interest that you have and vice versa. So I think taking the pressure off of our romantic partners a little bit and finding these communities, whether through shared hobbies or, you know, by virtue of working together, I feel like work friendships are, are a big thing, even though those have their own <laughs> ups and downs. Um, mixing business with with pleasure is tricky. But again, it's it's just about having like some sort of a circle, a quality circle to turn to. Yeah, it's so true. That bickering thing, I never thought about that. Why? Because we definitely know couples who bicker and they typically are around each other too much or they're their only source of support. I mean, we need we need that space to I think about college and me and my roommate, we get in arguments at times. And the thing that saved us was, you know, the ability to go into someone else's room and hang out for a little bit, you know, to kind of yeah. cool off as adults. I mean, when we were kids, we got like timeouts, but we don't need a timeout really as an adult. We just, we need like, um, you know, I, I was trying to do a play on words, but we need another space of, of where we can kind of think about or decompress or uh, just kind of be instead of feel like we have to be on. Yes. I recently heard the term third spaces or third places where it's not home, it's not work. It's this third place that you can go. So for me personally, that's always has been and always will be nature, the woods, the beach. But we've had a decrease in options for third places to go to get that relaxation and that disconnect from those two kind of primary aspects of life. Uh, and as someone who works from home and spends an excessive amount of time at home as a result of of that, um, I'm finding the importance of these third places, but then it's so wonderful that you can go to this third place and find people there to connect with. That's the ideal situation. Is it's not just a coffee shop where you have your headphones and your laptop and you're just kind of a little solo pod around other solo pods. It's wonderful if you can then collaborate and connect with those people in that third place. And that makes it more meaningful too. Yeah, you talked about your parents being immigrants, and and I know that you in some way are an immigrant to, to San Diego, and and I, yeah. I love the last story that you shared about Halloween. Can can you share that story? Because it's rooted in this sense of belongingness, but also what I loved about your story was um, it's a reminder that when we don't feel connected or we want to be a part of, that it takes effort. We can't just sit at home and hope for the phone to ring like you you took action talk to us about the, the the halloween that where you're like oh none of my friends are you know available yes uh yes last halloween in 2022 it was i i already knew i was going to go out uh it's, it's a tradition of mine i love dressing up i feel as though 
being creative with my costumes and you know sourcing locally again going to local thrift stores talking to the people there forming that connection instead of going to the easy choice of Amazon you know where it's it's, it's as impersonal as it can get um yes the options are are ample and ship it's a, we want to invest locally that's a big movement that's happening right now thankfully so that experience for me was one of many uh having gone on vacations on my own historically most of my adult life and relocating on my own I already knew I was going into this I'm now part of the community that is San Diego but that doesn't mean I belong yet or that I feel that I belong yet no belonging has to be earned so we we're looking at a scenario of no one wanted to <laughs> go that, that we, either people are tired of Halloween by that point or they're just not into dressing up in the first place. And I went out knowing that it would be a bar crawl. I'm not a bar crawl person. I've not done these before. So the point for me was hopefully I can catch these people early before they get too plastered and actually have a little bit of connection. I'm not expecting to make lifelong friends at a bar or find any anyone significant. And we'll come back to that in a moment because I ended up doing so. But it was definitely an experience one of of several that I had since relocating of I have to take the risk I have to show up as myself and see who I can find who understands my vibe my energy likes to talk in depth about topics isn't about the surface and that's not an easy thing to find and especially not making a friends as adults it is very difficult I think after college we we really are starting to have this conversation more of how hard it is to both find and keep friendships going as adults. So it's it's not even about I have to make sure I find my best friend tonight. It's about who can I meet tonight that will maybe keep me company as I people watch, as I engage with people and having a costume to talk about makes it that much easier. Having my my cat in a tote makes it that's a conversation piece. So for people who are, so sometimes having that accessory is helpful, as I'll say. <laughs> but um, I think that was an evening where I did end up finding a, 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 a couple that I hung out with for the night, and it was it was nice because we moved from place to place, and I had that conversation going on that kept me feeling not as concerned about who is it that's it's 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 intimidating. I'm not going to lie because, and it, but like anything else, it, you get better at it with practice. Uh, so that's applicable to when you go out to networking events for people who are, you know, professionals looking to connect that way or, um, you know, meetups where you're doing hobbies. You're walking into it with with the networking events and meetups. There's already that common goal, but that's not always the case when you sit down at a bar and you're just looking to be not on your own <laughs> for a bit. You know, you have to come in. But always lead with your authentic self. It's just so much easier. You know what I mean? Um, and yet it's very human to want to fit in. So that's always going to be like the internal struggle is even once you feel comfortable being your authentic self. And I am, I guess, lucky enough that I struggle not to be my authentic self. So <laughs> where other people are like, oh, I got to gotta fit. I got to just, I got to dress like them, talk like them. You know, I've never really been that way. And it's been kind of a double-edged sword. It's been a blessing and a curse in some ways. So. How so? Can you, can you tell us more about that? Because it's, I've 
I've never really thought about the people who don't have. Well, you know, actually, I think about stars in that way. When I when I think about people who have uh, the it factor, the X factor, you have a sense that this is who they've decided to be and, and or just who they are. And it doesn't matter if the cameras are on or off. Like, this is how I'm showing up. Uh, you know, and I, I've, I've seen it even in standard. I remember there was this comic. Uh, he's still alive. I said, like, remember, like he's dead. But Corey Holcomb, mm-hmm. and he mm-hmm. did a show at midnight in front of two people and performed as if there were 2,000 people. And it was one of the mm-hmm. best to this day. Like, this was like 20 years ago. I saw this. To this day, I think about that performance. Like, how amazing. And he did almost an hour. He could have just, hey, all right, two people, I'll do 10 minutes. And he just, he was like, no, this is, this is who I am. This is what I, like, there's no separation between me and the stage. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, and I think that people who others gravitate towards have that. I think cult leaders have that <laughs> kind of, kind of thing <laughs> because they just believe they're just like, this is who I am. Like, I'm not, I'm not making this stuff up. I didn't read this in a book. Um, but there's something charismatic and attractive about people who are consistent and are like, kind of have it like, this is my way. Yes, I agree. It's funny because I have a close friend who's told me that I would make a good cult leader. <laughs> but I told her if I were to start one, it wouldn't be harmful. So I don't know that the you know cults are generally speaking harmful. So um, yeah, I think there that's probably again. Um, I don't know how long we've been saying being authentic is the thing that draws people to you. I, I think that regardless of how good you are at pretending to be something at a certain point you break character and that's when people i i I don't know if right now we could you know bring in the situation with lizzo you know i think that's a a really stunning kind of thing that we're learning about uh and hopefully people have the context for it but she seems to be behind the scenes very different from the persona that she has cultivated so but it's it's so intricate, right? I would say, first of all, starting with being your authentic self, meaning that your thoughts and your emotions and your actions are all in line with each other. So in alignment, in integrity. That's where you have to start. And that's what produces the authenticity. If any of those things are in conflict, it's going to come out in how you express yourself and in the actions you take. Or the actions you're taking will cause you a feeling of unease in your body. And you'll you'll know it, but you'll push past it. You'll use your mind. We use our mind to rationalize. No, I've got to keep doing this because it's the practical thing to do. I don't think authenticity cares about practicality. Not always anyway. Which is what's scary about leaning into it. When you do risk being, your, you could alienate people. And as you and I have talked about, as uh, beings, as social beings, social animals, the only thing infants fear, they're not afraid of fire, they're not afraid of heights, they don't understand electricity, they're not afraid of anything except to be left alone, to be abandoned. 
And this is a fear that's ingrained in us and follows us throughout our lives. So the fear of loss of community is very deep. And that's what most often across the lifespan prevents us from being our authentic selves. As you, you know, I, I feel kind of like um, uh, speechless, obviously, because I'm da, 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 da. But <laughs> one of the things that came to mind was this idea that, as you mentioned earlier, it's it's been a blessing and a curse to show up authentically. Um, and and so you know, for the listeners out there, I I don't want people to feel like you have to all of a sudden become authentic um just know that there's trade-offs there's a trade-off for being 100 percent you there's a trade-off for you know 100 percent trying to just fit in and and go with the flow of the um i and i and i think part of um mastering authenticity is also being aware of context right so when i, I think about prisoners of war I was watching this uh, movie Unbroken, and this this uh, you know they had these different uh, prisoners, and the Japanese soldier was selecting the prisoners who he thought were the strongest and toughest, and those were the ones that he broke down and humiliated in front of everyone. So this mm-hmm. idea of always showing up tough and strong and uh, you know, having a voice and speaking up, sometimes that can work against you because those are the ones who um, are quickly broken down. Even when you looked at slaves, if you were, if they saw that you were strong and physically capable, they they were going to break you first mentally to make sure that you didn't use that strength against, you know, the master um and then they would you know let you back out even beautiful people i think about beautiful people it's like if you're too gorgeous it almost becomes a burden because (laughs) society won't let you do certain things and you, you kind of get you know shuffled into a certain area how when you were young how did that show up for you as a as a as a as a struggle as a challenge I would say in my experience, uh, and I may, I think I'm a little different than most people. I became conscious in middle school, actually, which is a time when I think, you know, teens start to, or adolescents, I think is the proper terms. They begin to experiment a lot more with their physical appearance and um, their self-expression. It really, I think it starts like in the preteens time, but I suddenly became very aware that no matter what I did, someone would always be complaining. I couldn't seem to satisfy everyone. Up until that point, I prided myself on, oh, everyone likes me. I get along with everyone. But suddenly something clicked and I was like, it doesn't matter. So I might as well just do what feels right to me and what I believe is the right thing to do as well. You know, the moral thing or the kind thing. So I, I think that was when I started to experiment more, more with my looks and try different styles. And I was lucky, fortunate enough that I had parents who didn't stop me from playing. You know, I think a lot of parents are are, are fearful as soon as the child is born, even before it's born, of letting the child do 
whatever it needs to, I'm going to say it just to remove gender, um, because just the, the being needs to be allowed to experiment, to figure itself out. But because our priority, our brain, our ego prioritizes safety and security, it's parents will be discouraging their children from a very young age from being their authentic selves and expressing elements of themselves that may not even be bad. It's just that in that parent's experience, it could kick them out of the of, of the group. It could get them, you know, uh, yeah, they could they could be separated from the pack, so to speak. And so for the parent, and especially in my case, again, immigrant parents, they're even more on that alert mindset where they need to make sure that we survive. And the way that you survive is you don't stray too far. I'm grateful they got, let me keep my name. They didn't assimilate us so much that they changed our names to American names. And, you know, but I mean, heck, my dad still reads the Russian newspaper and watches Russian television. So it's, you know, habits are hard to break sometimes. But I'm absolutely a Ukrainian American. You know, my sister and I are Americanized. So I, we're, we're kind of, I feel like I'm sort of have one foot in both camps where I love that I can still speak Russian and I take pride in maintaining that. And so I've met recently people who are Russian speaking. It just gives you another way to relate. You know what I mean? It never hurts to have that. And yet I'm also clearly culturally Americanized. So again, they let us experiment and play. Maybe it had to do with them having been in a communist state where options were significantly decreased, where finding fashionable clothing and, you know, products, makeup products, food, music, all of this was so limited in the Soviet Union you know, so that's definitely, as we know, the downside of, of the communist kind of approach. But so I think they wanted us to have the freedom of choice. And so they let me and my sister figure out who we were. So I, I was lucky. But that being said, there's still a, a cultural expectation of certain types of behaviors. And um, there were consequences for being more expressive, more this demanding of having my opinion heard and considered up until my teen years I think I was the good girl and then it sort of flipped <laughs> so 15 year old me was a oh it was hell I think to to raise me but <laughs> I've never been great with authority unless I respect it and unless I feel heard by it so and I, again my my path is not something that is for the faint of heart I think most people need to tread lightly into the territory of being truly authentic and kind of dip their toe little by little. They're likely, depending on the community they're part of, it's hard to say how much acceptance they're going to get. Again, because our brains fear change and new things. They want consistency, predictability, and security. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I get in the car, put my seatbelt on. I put a helmet on if I could when I'm driving like that's how much security I want right like yeah I, I want like the double seat belts that they have in race cars it, it, it's so true and and it until you have that feeling of security and safety it, it does make it challenging to to venture out what do you think switched for you once you got into high school at 15 all of a sudden you're like this good girl thing is, is it you think it was the hormone changes or 
what was what, what happened? What, <laughs> what flipped the switch? Did you meet a guy? No, uh, rarely have men been the the pivot point for me. But um, that being said, my father is an important figure in my life, and he, I would say, is the one who is the more the outlier. My mom cares much more about fitting in. My dad has always seemed like the odd one, and I I relate to that oddness, quote unquote. But fifteen ish was, I think, around the time we, we relocated. So again, change of school change of environment i'm now being pushed and at that point again i was already fairly confident in who i was i was building like the friendships that i had in my middle and high school friends but 10th grade we 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 moved i finally had a room to myself but it was a whole new high school and that self expression the way i dressed and the way i presented myself was suddenly being put to the test i was not easily accepted into my new school I struggled to find friends and make connections probably until senior year. I think I finally found like a group that I enjoyed being with. But um, nonetheless, I couldn't bring myself to change the way I dressed at that point. I had already doomed or agreed upon being me. And while that always will shift, right, that's an ever-changing thing. My natural response wasn't so much, okay, let me change my personality. And especially the way I dress, because in high school, it's so much about the way you look. And at that point, it was all about the Abercrombie, the preppy styles, the multiple layered, you know, flip collar shirts and so forth. And not only does that not look right on my body, it's just not a look I ever wanted to go for. And so it, I was left with no choice but to, again, seek out the other people who I could relate to, maybe not in the way we dressed. And so I found the people who were on the outskirts, so to speak, in a school that was heavily dominated by these sort of, quote unquote, preppy kids, right? The popular preppy kids. So, which is funny because it's sort of short for preparatory school, which is all about uniforms and uniformity, right? So it's just, it's such a perfect analogy where it's like, you're you're one of us or you're out. You're like, you're with us or you're against us. And that was probably one of the first times I experienced bullying to some extent. But, and I think again, looking back, I think I blocked out a lot of the, the sadness I felt at that time, but I found connection in the other immigrant kids. I found connection in the other, like the goth kids, the punk kids, you know, I was dressed like I was going to college already. I what high heels, you know, the, I didn't look like anyone else, but the people who didn't judge me based solely on how I looked were the ones that I ended up finally connecting with. So it took a while, but it still proved my point that never for me going to be the path of like, change yourself to fit in. It, it, just feels too uncomfortable for me. But for some people, I will note, it's some people getting out of the replication of other people is the part that hurts. So not everyone's the same. When you said it feels uncomfortable for you, what part of your body do you typically feel that? What part of your body lets you know, like, uh, this is not lined up with our, our values, with who we are? I think it feels... I would say, first of all, you feel tired. It feels exhausting, but on a, on a kind of a visceral level, probably I would say tightness in the, in the chest area. 
throat and chest. And if you think of it in spirituality, the chakra system, your throat chakra and your heart chakra. So those are the areas that I would feel impacted me. But then I would also, I think what the lack of fitting in the, the trying to fake it, <laughs> I, I think it caused a lot of digestive issues for me. I'm fairly sure most of us experience digestive upset as a result of the anxiety we feel of worrying about, do I belong? Do I fit in? And also is what I'm doing even me, you know? So our stomach being a second brain of sorts, where there's a lot of serotonin production, starts to, I imagine, decrease the serotonin production, which increases our sense of unease. Wow. I, yeah, I just read this book, you know, not just maybe a year ago, about um, Avicii, the DJ. Mm. And he had mm. uh, st strong gastrointestinal issues, which I've always had. I've had since I was a kid. I remember when I was a well, maybe third grade, second or third grade, I was diagnosed with having an ulcer, stomach ulcer. And wow. I remember the doctor being like, you're way too young. I've never seen a stomach ulcer in a kid this age. Oh. And even in, yeah. in college, I would have to drink like a bottle of Pepto before every football game. Like I, I just had so much angst. Um, and and as so as you're sharing what you said about faking and pretending, I you know, I... I don't know what I was faking or pretending as a, as a kid, but I, I remember feeling more called to the arts, but pursuing mm -hmm. sports instead. I love to play yeah. sports and I love to be active. I don't know that I necessarily wanted to be on a team though, and to make it like a formal thing. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's what, and, and I think that kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier, where you know, the, the, they say the strongest survive, but I feel like the strongest also get selected for tasks that based on their physicality and it's not considered uh, what the internal world uh, of that person is. You know, I remember like when I played college football, there would be guys who were like 6'5", 300 pounds, but they just want to code computers all day. You know, they had no interest in playing. But if you look at them, you go, oh, that guy's got to play football. And so they got pushed into this football track. We track people based on physicality. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, this. Uh, so I'm glad you brought up like the throat, the chest, the stomach, because those are all areas of which I've been struggling with. And I'm, and I'm struggling to find that authenticity, that voice, I think, is one of the reasons why I joined Toastmasters also. I like that. Uh, and actually related to your unique situation and pretty much anyone else, sometimes the discomfort we feel in terms of the lack of authenticity may not be in the way we're expressing ourselves. It may be in because we're pretending to be okay when we're not. And oftentimes what's going on at home for us as kids is the cause of that. And it's not to you know put the blame on parents when, when they are having a tough time as a couple, but, or if there is a break in the, in the marriage, I know your family situation is really complex, but having parents who did stay together for the kids, right? Speaking from that perspective, it's, it's, it's impossible, especially for someone like myself. I happen to, I'm, the term is being overused, but I'm an empath. I'm definitely an empath that feels what other people feel. 
some empaths, you know, there's different types of clairvoyance, clairsentience. As someone who tends to feel other people's emotions, whether I want to or not, and I'm still learning how to moderate that, I felt it when my parents were bickering. I felt it when my grandparents were bickering. I didn't, I wanted to stop it. I wanted to help them heal, but it was not in my control. And as as a young person, as a child, as a teen, we're st- our brain is still developing. So our body may be taking on that anxiety and holding that all day. I mean, that's bound to express itself in a physical dis-ease way. You know, so I, I would say it's not even just about being like expressing your authentic self and your personality and your clothing and what you, you you're saying about yourself. It's about what's going on at home that may be staying with me. Yeah. You know, wearing high heels and dressing like a college student in high school, where was there an image that you had in mind or where did that come from? Because that is atypical of a high school student. And also it doesn't sound very comfortable for a high school student. <laughs> I think about gym um, class and all the activities and. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would say, I guess that was just, there was a certain point where I kid you not, I, and this was in middle school of all times. I dressed like the women who worked at Bloomingdale's in the luxury section with like the long uh, coat and the, the pant. And so it was like an elegant tailored outfit, but still looked classy. And I would curl my hair and I had like this really specific aesthetic that I was going for that nobody else was doing. Um, certainly not in my age group, but yeah, over time it developed more into a more stylish look, not so overly mature, I guess you could say. Um, and I was, by the way, interspl- interspliced with me experimenting with those baggy pants and dressing like a punk too at certain points, you know, dark makeup. Like it was, I, I did the whole rigmarole and I feel like everyone should allow be allowed to do that, honestly, as long as it doesn't put your life in danger or bother other people, just clothing. Um, but that's the style I chose to stick to. I think it was influenced by maybe my, you know, Ukrainian, Russian speaking background, our culture. We drew, it's, it's about physical appearance is a big part of it. Uh, presenting yourself well. Um, and then I guess, yeah, I mean, I think I was also unfortunately affected by the male gaze. I think that that was ingrained in me early on being a product of the the aughts, the, the, the 2000s and 2010s being big years for um, me growing up. Um, yeah, I would say that was part of, I think, why I liked that look and blending in with, again, there's so many aspects to it, loving fashion, understanding proportions, knowing that I look better with a high heel. It it makes my, my body proportions align better. So, and that comes into the perfectionist aspect of me, which is another, another recovering perfectionist as I prefer to call myself. You talked about the male gaze. I would imagine that look would attract older men. Did you find yourself dating older men? And I mean, that's I typical say, for most women yeah. now that I'm saying that. Most women don't <laughs> date guys their age. but Right. Uh, due to the pervasive misconception and myth that women mature faster than men that we have had ingrained in us for far too long. Uh, and boys will be boys are allowed to act more mature for a far longer period of time than girls are allowed to act. 
immaturely, so to speak. But yeah, I was absolutely drawn to, I don't think it was really a matter of age, but generally speaking, people who also enjoyed deep conversation and deep thought and um, had life experience to impart on me that I could learn from. I think that I was drawn to that. So I did, I think, gravitate towards an older crowd. Yeah. <laughs> so you talked earlier about depression and ADHD and I hadn't really thought about the link of ADHD being linked to depression. Um, can you talk about that and, and why that would be and, 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 um, and how that, how you experienced that? Yes. So as you look into the, so the umbrella of ADHD is inclusive of what people call ADD, but it's actually inattentive ADHD versus hyperactive ADHD. Those are the two uh, kind of aspects of it. And you could be one or both. I am the style that is inattentive, where it's not that I have struggle sitting still. I It's more that my brain has a struggle sitting still internally. And one of the side effects of ADHD is our bodies are not as effective at producing dopamine. So dopamine production being decreased, we're more likely or prone to experience depressive episodes. Now, whether that becomes a diagnosis of depression is hard to say, but I would say that so far I've met more people who struggle with instances of depressive times throughout their lives than not, who are also uh, in line with the ADHD diagnosis, whether they've been diagnosed or feel that they would be if they got a proper diagnosis. So it's simply a part of the condition that we need to be prepared to address actively. So I can speak to that in that the periods in my life where I've been better at self-discipline with more, more, more or less regular exercise, sleeping well, eating regular meals, inevitably I would have a, a, a better sense of well-being. Now that's true for everybody, but with people with ADHD, it's essential to do these things. And yet we struggle the most with that regular, disciplined, structured schedule. So the thing we struggle with most is the thing we need most. Oh, that, that makes sense. I find myself constantly fighting sleep at night and I'm like, why? Because once I get into bed, I'm so happy. But it's getting me from the couch to bed that uh, is the challenge. And I, I just have to, rem I have these mental tricks I have to play where I ask myself questions to get myself into bed. And it, and it actually works. What do you, you know, you talk about the mind, the body being still. I, I never heard it explained like that. This is beautiful. Inattentive disorder is the body being still, but the mind is racing. So how do you manage that? Well, first off, I think part of my journey, and I'm still at the, at the early stages of it, has been recognizing that I guess it's important not to treat it as a flaw, even though the current system we live in, the current structure, social structures we have, are not accommodating of the way that the ADHD mind works or they're minimally accommodating of it. So finding ways to work with it rather than to continue to suppress it, which again, actually kind of aligns with our conversation about authenticity. And again, I'm, I'm going to put an asterisk here to say that 
I think more and more people are struggling with these this host of symptoms that amount to this type of diagnosis potentially, in part because of our dependence, over-dependence on devices like our phone and the overexposure to information. For a brain that is already, let's say, leans into ADHD, we're naturally, we tend to be curious. We want to learn. We want to soak up information. We want input. And so that's all well and good. And there's a whole other conversation about the necessity of output to follow that input. I think that's what a lot of people struggle with, including myself. But I think, yeah, managing the symptoms, but, you know, I want to be careful with word choice because I think that does matter, is that there are so many positive aspects to ADHD that make us unique individuals. and on the spectrum of neurodiverse versus neurotypical that diversity that we're adding it there's so many positive aspects again we become very passionate and laser focused that's why to say it's attention deficit it's not a deficit of attention it's that our attention jumps from thing to thing very rapidly so it's just about trying to harness that so some some activities that help that with that goes back to Again, that third place, nature, walking in nature, ideally without earbuds in, listening to the sounds, smelling, hearing, just all of the senses being engaged in that present moment, as well as for me, meditation. I am going to be a proponent of meditation and nature walks for as long as I live (laughs) because and I think I again, everyone I talk to where I haven't become um, made meditation a regular practice, everybody says, I know I should do it. I do it sometimes, but I don't do it regularly. And that was my story for up until 2020 as well. So in 2020, before the pandemic began, I randomly was just called to look into transcendental meditation. I'd done other styles of meditation before that including uh, guided meditation, mindfulness meditation. I used the Headspace app and that kind of got me interested in, oh, just 10 minutes of just paying attention to my thoughts instead of letting my thoughts run my day, just paying attention to what comes up and recognizing how unimportant most of it is. You know, it's just like my brain is obsessed with running the show. It's like 24 hour news networks. You're just on all the time. And it's the the onslaught, the nonstop speculation that goes on inside our brain. Meditation gives us a break from that to some extent. Not every meditation session is the same. That's something we're taught in a, a very early with transcendental meditation. That's true of all styles of meditation. Some days it'll be amazing, but other days it'll still you'll still be a little bit bombarded with those thoughts. But taking that time out, closing your eyes, sitting still, already it's. It's beneficial every time. And I feel the benefits of it the days after. I feel it immediately after, but I also feel it the day after. Whereas if I skipped the day before, oh, I feel that. My body feels more tense. So it's the best addiction I could have ever possibly formed is to meditation. (laughs) Yeah, I I love that. Meditation is a break from that 24-hour news cycle that we have running through our head. Because it is. Most of the thoughts that are running through our head are negative, fear-based. You know, we're worrying about, they're anxious about the future. Uh, you know, we're regretting the past. Uh, we're, we're nowhere close to being in the present moment. And uh, it's just a ter- commercial break. And, 
and it's a way of just paying attention. I think when I think about meditation, the way it was sold to me early was that it's this place of peace and tranquility and nirvana. But the truth is, is that the first phase of meditation is being aware of all the chatter that's going on up there. Um, that, you know, because we're distracted from it through work and exercise and this and that. Um, I feel like we could talk for another 12 hours. We're going to have you back on because <laughs> we haven't even, we haven't even gotten into, into the weeds yet. I feel like, you know, we just, oh, I, I see why Joe Rogan does like 12 hour uh, <laughs> podcasts because we just got yeah. started here. But um, yes. is there any th part of your journey in terms of authenticity, belonging, you know, inattentive, uh, you know, uh, I hate to say I hate, I hate that word disorder because even that word doesn't. But um, but <laughs> coping, managing any of that that you feel like would be a benefit to my listeners. I do believe, regardless of you know your belief system, religious leanings, what have you. And when I say meditation, by the way, I don't even associate it with anything. It doesn't have to be spiritual. It's better to start off going into it, not expecting anything. But the point of it is also to listen to your body and your inner voice. Because our ego and the, the, the forefront of the, you know, the brain, it, it's, it, it's saying as much as it possibly can to us all day long, out of a desire to protect us, it's trying to act like a third caretaker or a third parent to keep us safe. But our intuition is a much quieter, softer voice. And it doesn't provide a reason for why it is the way it is. The intuitive sense is not, it's an, an inner knowing without an external proof. But you have to listen to that. If you ignore that inner voice, which by the way, chimes in pretty much all the time, the more you tune into it, the more it will start leading you toward whatever it is that's authentic to you. Because you might think certain things are authentic, but a lot of it has, you know, we're just so easily influenced by our brains are so suggestible, so suggestible. So all the media we take in, our friends, our, our familial ideas, our cultural background, all of this has such an impact on who we are. And that's not a bad thing, but we are best off when we pick the parts of those things that actually make us feel peaceful i think it's peace really it's not really the pursuit of happiness already makes it seem like you're running after it you're chasing it but i think what we really want is peace we want to feel a sense of calm inside uh, that we can fake on the outside right so i think that that's probably my main tip is whether it's taking a walk in nature and just listening to your thoughts and asking yourself questions you know, what do I, what do I really want? What actually makes me feel like I can do it day to day? You know, because that's the you want to create a sustainable system. Whatever it is, whether it's diet, exercise, work, hobbies, sleep schedule it needs to be sustainable i think with adhd that's taught me the importance of if you set your goals way too high you're going to fail and it's going to make you feel like garbage so instead it's the small incremental goals 
It's not, I'm never going to fill in the blank. It's, I'm not going to do it today. For the next hour, I'm not going to do blank. So these like, and it's not brilliant or new advice, but in the in the journey to find your authentic self, which can also be seen as the journey of self-development or spiritual growth, there's so many different things, but I think it's all leading up to how do I feel the most like me, you know? that's that's it's setting incremental goals for the changes that you're making and forgiveness forgive yourself you know i think that's a huge part of it forgiving others but also forgive yourself for not meeting your goals while also reminding yourself that keeping promises to yourself adds up it's building trust with ourselves and that also ties into the authenticity i love that how do I feel the most like me and, and also making sure I'm keeping my promises to me, building that trust within ourselves. Uh, last two questions. I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yeah. yourself, what would you say to them? Consider whether what's happening in this moment is forever. And remember, nothing is forever, which is exactly where we started this conversation. So is there a chance you haven't explored something or haven't given your true self a chance to shine yet? Because you, like everyone else, has been weighed down by so many expectation and ex expectations and external factors. Just give it, give it just another minute. Listen to you the inner voice under all the frustration it may not be ready to give up uh may not be ready to give up and then last question what are you looking forward to in the next 24 hours <laughs> i'm looking forward to toastmasters <laughs> <laughs> that's an easy one <laughs> community the community i i love that thank you alana for joining us thank you listeners for tuning in remember this podcast is not a substitute for going to get help call the 988 or any of the 800 numbers no matter where you are in the world you could be in russia the ukraine you can be in uh, budapest there are numbers for you to call where you can chat text talk you can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one -on -one coaching with yours truly let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Alana. Thank you, Leo. Thank you so much for having me.